It's the last day of a murder trial. It's not going well for the defense. There's no body, but it's pretty clear who did it. And the defense attorney gets to his summary and he said, ladies and gentlemen, I've come into a surprising piece of information. I'd like to assure you of my client's innocence and tell you that in the next 30 seconds, the person that you think is the victim will walk right through that door. And so everybody turns and looks at the door for 30 seconds, 45, a minute, nobody shows up. And, the, uh, and then the attorney says, okay, okay, I, I'm sorry, I tried to trick you. I just wanted to leave you with the idea that if we can't find the body, there is a reasonable doubt that this person was not killed by my client. And if there is a reasonable doubt, you must acquit. So the jury goes back and deliberates, and about 10 minutes later they come out And do you find the defendant guilty? We find the defendant guilty. And the defense attorney is stunned and he comes up to the chairperson of the jury and he says, how could you find him guilty so fast? He said, well, I I just couldn't help noticing when you said that the victim was going to walk through. We all stared at the door, but your client never even looked up. It was like he knew something we didn't. How do we address issues of faith and doubt? How do we know what's true and what's not as believers? We've spent the last month talking about faith and doubt. Let's take a real quick look back at what we've learned. Matt started the series off and and he said, For many people, your faith becomes like a house of cards. Stacked higher and higher and higher with all the things that you need to believe and glued together by your insistence that all this stuff has got to be true. And if any one of those cards gets pulled out, the whole thing falls down. He said, that's not what faith should look like. Faith is not a house of cards. It's a journey where we find a path that even when we get lost, God finds us. And then uh, three weeks ago, Carrie in front of 120 kids from our confirmation class, told those kids and reminded us that doubt and faith go together and that the faithful wrestle with their doubts. Remember, she used the image of a wrestler to talk about how the faithful people, in the, in the Old Testament, Jacob wrestles with God all night and at the dawn, God renames him as the one who holds on. The one who wrestles with God in our doubts, but holds on, clinging to God. Two weeks ago, I talked about how uh, the opposite of doubt is not belief. The opposite of doubt is not belief. It is instead choosing to act on what you do know. I said, God cannot show us the stars unless we're willing to creep a little out of the darkness. That's faith. We creep forward out of the darkness. It is a leap of faith. And it's wholly dependent on our willingness to let go and even more dependent on whether we will be caught when we let go. So faith and doubt becomes less about having your answers given and more in a confidence of whether you will be caught when you let go. I'd like to pull it together today by doing just two things. The first is sharing with you, frankly, my doubts. The places where I struggle with faith and doubt. And then offering you a different view 
that may help you with doubt and faith. I think when you talk about faith and doubt, we've got three or four great books, the pathway addressing that, that the most important word in the phrase faith and doubt is and. You really cannot have one without the other. And I struggle with doubts. Personally, I, I struggle... Um, I struggle with the lack of evidence. It would be so much easier to believe in God if there were 10,000 foot letters in the sky every morning saying, John, get going, you're late already. If God would act in ways that I could believe. And I know that I'm not alone in that. Faith is in what we do not see, which by its nature cannot be proven. And so some people choose not to believe at all. The lack of evidence makes it easier to doubt for them. In the last century, Bertrand Russell was a famous atheist, and he was asked at a dinner party one time, what's going to happen if you die and you're wrong? You die and you appear before God. And God says, what do you have to say for yourself? Russell stops for just a second and said, I'd say to God, you should have offered me better proof. I think a lot of us feel that way. We'd like more proof. I got an email after one of the sermons on uh, faith and doubt that uh, I thought was just really good. And I, I thought I'd share a little of this. It's long, but I'll just share a little bit of it with you. It says, uh, I loved your sermon on faith, Carrie. I mean, John. I loved your sermon on faith. He says, I'm a physicist with a PhD and 30 years of experience in the applied sciences. My professional life has been devoted to finding and applying evidence and data to discover new scientific truth. There are no fairy tales allowed. As you can imagine, the science curriculum in secular society is pretty much set up against the Christian faith. The teaching in university is that there's no evidence for God or Jesus, that science with a capital S has removed all need for that superstition and disproved the old ideas. Furthermore, I'm personally committed to the notion of evidence and truth. It's important for me to believe in something that I know is true, and the whole idea of a leap of faith was not for me. That old Sunday school definition of faith as believing something that you know is not true gave me the hives. It still does. But in my case, as a young man, my bacon was saved by learning that there really are solid, objective evidences for God and for Jesus and even for the Bible. This is called apologetics, right? The defense of the faith. It does not have to be hyper-cerebral But we need objective reasons why the Christian faith is true. Why Jesus is real and lives today. That the Bible is from God and is true in an understandable way. He said, I don't look for mathematical proofs or absolute logic, but rational, reasonable evidence from history. He finishes this way. So I... I encourage you to tell people there are solid reasons why doubt can be satisfied and turned into faith. Faith can be reasonable. It's actually more sensible than continuing in extreme doubt that refuses to believe. 
Faith won't be certainty till we meet God in heaven. After all, this is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But it needn't be considered stupid or ignorant or contrary to science. Moving from doubt to faith should be a small step assisted by evidence, not a long, blind leap in defiance. Faith makes sense. I I agree. I, I don't think that there is enough evidence to prove, but there is plenty to point toward. This year we're doing something a little different. I'm going to teach each grade of our high school classes one evening during each semester. I'll go to the four different classes. And for that evening, I'll just sit there and we're going to talk about questions that they have already handed in. What questions do you have about faith or God or life? And more important, we're going to start a discussion that says your questions are important because I believe there are answers. Mark Olson here has been teaching a course on apologetics that we will probably repeat because so many of you want those answers. You know, there, there are answers to my doubts, to my desire for belief, but, uh, but the reality is that faith is not about being the smartest person in the world with, with all the answers. Um, there's a flight, private plane, going to see the President of the United States. The pilot is carrying uh, an NBA All-Star and a Nobel-winning peace winner, uh, sorry, a scientist, and uh, the Eagle Scout who has just saved somebody's life and the Eagle Scout's grandpa. The plane hits heavy weather and starts to shudder and shake, and all of a sudden the engine goes out, the pilot turns and he says, okay, that's it. And opens the door, grabs a parachute and says, follow me, and jumps out. The NBA player, even before the guy is at the door, goes, it's almost the playoffs. I'm the greatest basketball player in the world. They need me. He grabs a parachute and jumps out afterwards. The Nobel scientist looks and sees that there are only two parachutes left and still three in the plane. He says, you know, I'm I'm sorry. I'm the smartest man in the world. Our, Our world needs what I have to offer. And he grabs a chute and jumps out. And Grandpa turns to his beloved grandson and says, you know, I've lived a long life filled with love and uh, son. And and the Eagle Scout stops and says, don't worry about it, Grandpa. Don't worry about it at all. The smartest man in the world just jumped out of the plane with my backpack. (sighs) Sometimes the smartest people in the world are jumping out of planes with backpacks. I mean to say, we'll always have questions. In the end, doubt is more about what are you going to do with what you know than getting one more answer. Sooner rather than later, you have to act on what you do know. But I still struggle. I I also struggle, probably the most thing that I struggle with most, and, and you understand it, I bet, I struggle with the notion of pain, the problem of evil and pain in our world, in this beautiful world. I just this week was uh, trying to console a friend of mine. We have daughters the same age, and his little girl, who is married, was just set on fire, literally by her husband, and burned 
over 70% of her body. How, how, do you, how do you explain that kind of pain? This is the difference between intellectual questions and real life. I think doubt, doubt is no big deal when it's all theoretical, but doubt comes into play when there are emotions involved. The problem of pain. Blaise Pascal once said that there is enough light for those who want to see and enough darkness for those who choose to hide. So Elie Wiesel, you've heard of Elie Wiesel. He is the the Jewish Holocaust survivor who has plenty of doubts sometimes. He wrote that the reason so many babies keep getting born is that God just loves stories. The one who survived the Holocaust believes that, like that film said, life is beautiful, even in the midst of pain. But in the same way, the great Russian author Dostoevsky is not only a Christian, but he is a profound person of faith. And Dostoevsky says the death of a single infant calls into question the very existence of a good God. I I struggle with those. And I want this to be a place that struggles with those. That you will not come here with your pain and get a glib answer. Take two of these, it'll be better in the morning, because it will not always be better in the morning. We need to avoid glib answers, but we also, we also need to avoid despair. The biggest book on faith and doubt in the Bible is the book of Job, right? Job has this terrible experience, cannot understand why as a good person all these bad things keep happening to him. The best part of the book of Job is that at the end, battered and filled with sores on his body, he sits down in the rain, and in the rain and the mud he just sits there, and three of his best friends come and they just sit with him. It's where the Jews get the tradition of sitting Shiva. They sit with the mourning one. And for seven days, they all just sat together in silence. Or when Job would erupt with some, why is this happening to me? How can God call himself good? What's going on? They just sat in silence. That's the best part of the book of Job. The worst part of the book of Job is when the three guys start to talk. They start to say, Job, this is only happening because God is mad at you. God is mad at, God is not mad at Job, but none of the four know that. And when we try to speak for God, the words should stick in our mouth. At the end of the book of Job, the answer of God is like that movie, A Few Good Men. Anybody remember the movie, A Few Good Men? The best scene in the movie, of course, is at the very end where Tom Cruise is yelling at Jack Nicholson, I want the truth. You want the truth. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Jack Nicholson yells, you can't handle the truth. And that is what God says to Job. You can't handle the truth. Where were you? When I created the idea of making lightning bounce off of the mountains. Where were you when I created the human eyeball and caused it to blink? Where were you when I created the storms? You can't handle the truth because you cannot see the end of the story from the beginning. But Job, Job, I'm here. I am here talking to you. So when I struggle with this idea of doubt and faith in the middle of pain, 
I want to be part of a fellowship of bleeding hearts. People whose hearts bleed together. Suffering together as we offer each other our presence and the presence of a God who suffers along with us. You guys might remember the very first week I said, I can give you all kinds of answers on faith and doubt, but I want to use the answer of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul turns to the church in Corinth and he says, I determined when I came to you to know nothing except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. When you understand Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Jesus Christ crucified, suffering for you, and Jesus Christ risen to bring you to life. That's the one thing that we need to sit together and believe and trust in, even in our pain. I do not know why there is so much pain in the world, but I do know that there is a God who has suffered and who cares and who comes. So I, I struggle with uh, not having enough answers to believe in. And I, I doubt sometimes because of the problem of pain. But I, I would not be honest if I didn't tell you that one of the reasons I have grave doubts about faith is Christians themselves. One of the reasons I doubt uh, that a good God changes lives is because I see so many Christians whose lives are not changing. So many people who claim to speak for God Or that turn to you and say, if you just believed more, if you just prayed harder, if you just believed what I did. I I, I struggle with faith because I am not certain. I'm living by faith. And they keep saying, if you doubt, you're bad. I think many people come into places like this looking for religious answers and hopefully we can give you some. But more than that, much more than answers, we want you to have a sense of faith. Because only faith, that is trusting in God, will allow your life to change. People don't believe in our God because they don't see us being changed. Somebody once asked Evelyn Waugh, who is a famous Catholic Christian author, they said, Evelyn... How can you be a Christian and still be so mean and nasty and spiteful? How can you be such a jerk and call yourself a Christian? And Wah responded, just imagine what I would be like if I were not a Christian. (laughs) Many of us are being changed in ways that are not visible. Many of us obscure that change by trying to make ourselves look better than we are. People will only believe in our God if they see our God working in us, but not to make us superstars. We need to offer other people the gift of authenticity, of of humility, and a commitment to follow Christ rather than just talk about it. I don't have all the answers, but I know that God wants me to do this. And I won't know any answers until I do that. One of the books that changed my life most, I read at the beginning of graduate school. It was called Shantung Compound. Shantung Compound by the, 
the head of the religious department at the University of Chicago, Langdon Gilkey. Shantung Compound is not a theology book at all. It's his story of how he survived a prison camp in World War II in China, Shantung Compound. The only reason you might have heard of Shantung Compound is that that is where Eric Liddell, remember Chariots of Fire, the missionary in Chariots of Fire in World War II, he is sent to Shantung Compound along with most of the other missionaries in China. And Liddell lives this life that people want to be like, even in the prison camp, but he dies at the end of the war. Gilkey is a brand new seminary graduate a progressive but filled with great ideas about God and the kingdom and how we ought to live. And he goes into the prison camp and says this, My faith died quickly. In less than a month, I realized I had no answers for this kind of life. And the Protestant missionaries all huddled together as if they were afraid to be contaminated in some way. They could only be holy if they kept their distance. But the Catholic priests, in prison they showed me the strength of faith without the weakness that so often accompanies piety. Strength of faith without the weakness that comes with piety. I want to look good. The priests communicated to others not how holy they were, but their inexhaustible acceptance and warmth toward the worldly and the hurting. Nothing and no one seemed to offend them or shock them. A person could count on being accepted by them. They mixed with everybody in the camp. And yet they remained unchanged in this intimate contact with the world. And that acceptance gave strength to our wayward world. And it gave me my faith in a good God back. How do you get that? How do you get that faith that is enough for you to keep creeping forward in spite of your doubts, how do you get that? I, I think for me it's uh, recognizing that the faith and doubt is not resolved by answers. It's by changing the contract. I, I think most of you have a contract with God. It's, you know, it's, it's like this. You, you buy a car, you buy a house, you, you do something, you, you sign a contract We live in a contractual society, improving the odds of success with people that we don't fully know, we don't fully trust, by labeling everything. In contracts, parties place their trust in a legally binding document that holds each party to the terms of the deal. We don't need a contract with God. We need what's called a covenant. Because in a covenant, people place their trust in the character of the other person. Is your faith a contract or a covenant? If your faith is a contract, you're always looking to make sure you have enough of the right answers and few enough doubts. That you've done enough of the right things and few of the bad things. You grade yourself on how few of your doubts you have. People in a covenant reach out their hand and say, God, help me. Covenant is how God wants to relate to his people. In the book of Genesis, it starts when God makes a covenant with Abram. The Lord said to Abram, leave your land, and I will make you into a great nation and bless you, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And that day the Lord 
made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I will give all this land from Egypt to the great Euphrates. A covenant that was not a contract. It was a promise between two people who were supposed to be getting to know each other. That's why when you get married, when you get married, you do not sign a contract. You don't spell out all the details of what this person will do or that person will do. It's not in the contract. Thank the good Lord that you don't have to have a contract to get married. My wife would have so many addendums to the contract that it would be pages and pages long. He will finally turn on his cell phone. He will finally put the clothes in the basket. He will do this and he will do that and he will do the other. And that would, frankly, be the longest part of the list. My wife did not marry me with a contract. But she said, I want to love you and commit myself to getting to know you. God doesn't want to make a deal with you. God doesn't make deals with us, letting us in if we get enough answers. Instead, God wants a marriage-like covenant with you. So when Jesus dies on the cross on our behalf, he was not trying to make a deal with you for you to sign the line. Jesus was inviting us into a covenant and says, if you will hold on to me, I will never let go of you. Faith and doubt exist till our final breath. And then we know. It's fascinating to me that in the book of Job, Job's doubts are never really answered to his satisfaction. But in the midst of his questions and his pain and his grief and his doubt, he cries out when his friend said, get rid of this, God, you've blown it already. Job says, no, no. I know that my Redeemer lives. And even if I die, at the end he will stand on the earth And my eyes will see my God. Faith that doesn't so much overcome doubt as it drags it along behind. Lord God, I believe by faith that you are here. That your spirit wants to enter every living heart here. That those of us who have fears and those of us who have doubts, that those of us who are afraid are all before you, and you don't want to write the contract. You want to reach out to us and say, Come, come and follow me, and I will show you far better than the answers to your questions. Surround us with love that will not let us go. Give us reason to hope. And show us your love that will never stop. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.